Hello and a very, very warm welcome to Series 2, no less, of Real Estate 2020 Vision. For those of you who are new to the show, this is the podcast connecting you with the people and the products shaping the future of residential real estate. My name's Guy Westlake, I'm founder of Lavanda, and our software powers flexible rentals for companies like Graystar, Blackstone, JLL, Aldar, and many others all around the world. But more of that another time. So obviously, a new series demands a new jingle. And with the stellar lineup of guests that we've got in store for you this series, we thought it was only appropriate to lay down the funkiest beats we could find. What we've got in store really is a who's who of the movers and shakers of real estate. So buckle up because that roller coaster ride starts right now with none other than Brad Hargreaves, founder and CEO of Common, one of the fastest growing residential brands in the US. Brad, welcome to the show. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. Brad, you're joining us from Midtown Manhattan. As is customary here in the UK, I'm going to start this conversation by asking you, what is the weather like? Uh, well, it is about uh, 10 degrees uh, Celsius and beautifully sunny, which is great for New York this time of year. Well, I'm genuinely delighted for you, but that's some way off the day that I'm experiencing here. But you're going to make that day a lot better, Brad, by telling me a little bit about Common. So let's start at the beginning. Having initially co-founded and grown a business in a completely different sector, you've now turned your attention to real estate. What was the initial spark that got you excited about this opportunity? Yeah. So first of all, I've always from, uh, from since I can remember been interested in housing in in layouts and floor plans and designs and ways that can be done better and differently. Prior to starting Common, I built a business called General Assembly. The education business, of course. Yes. It's a, it's a school. Absolutely. And it's uh, really focused on training in technology and design skills. Uh, so there's short courses, you know, uh, an hour or two, and then there are also, you know, three and six month long programs uh, for people who really want to change careers, learn a skill. And, you know, certainly one thing we saw while building General Assembly is the need for housing, for more flexible housing for more affordable housing, for housing that's easy for someone who is moving to a city for the first time, for example, who doesn't necessarily know about brokers and listing sites and doesn't want to put down a security deposit and do everything you need to do in a place like New York to to get an apartment. And we saw firsthand uh, that many of our, not just students, but our instructors and our employees, you know, were not just looking for an apartment that, you know, th- they would end up looking for a room on Craigslist, moving into a shared apartment with roommates. So we looked at that and said, there's an opportunity to really do that better. You know, in the U.S. alone, 25 million Americans, you know, share an apartment with roommates. Similarly, there's a huge need for small apartments for you know, studios for micro apartments, for things like live workspaces. So we looked at all these new typologies, things that were coming out, different layouts and said, let's build a, an integrated design and management firm focused on innovations in the residential built environment. And so it's kind of a, a, a quirky company in that we are a property management firm. That is what we do. We're not a developer, but we're vertically integrated with an architecture studio. Uh, where we actually do all of our own layouts, floor plans, designs, as well as manage a number of assets, uh, some of which we designed and some of which we we did not, with really a specialty in kind of these uh, these these innovative layouts. So today we're in 15 cities in the United States. We're under development in 20 or so more on top of that, including in London. Very exciting indeed. You seem to have covered a lot of ground in a relatively short period of time. Remind me, the company wasn't founded that long ago, was it? 
Well, it was 2015, so it was actually quite some time ago. And and we spent a while just very focused on a handful of cities, New York, San Francisco, D.C., Los Angeles, focused on generally small format co-living spaces. Over the past two years, we've really expanded pretty significantly, done a lot of larger developments, worked on and managed buildings beyond co-living, beyond kind of our origins as we've started working with larger developers, larger owners, groups that are looking to deploy capital and, and uh, you know, operate more at scale. Really interesting. I mean, I can certainly identify with the lack of vertically integrated operators who really truly understand the shift in rental demand that's happened over the last 10, 15 years. And really what that means in terms of the implications on the consumer journey that exists both online and offline within the built environment so that these buildings become more practical for the customer that they're actually intended to serve, i.e. the renter. Forgive me, I'm going to park common now for a moment. We're going to come back to it, of course, because I want to focus a little bit on Brad the person. And it's really important for our audience to understand the fundamental makeup of the founders behind these very innovative businesses. Let's wind back to your previous business, General Assembly, which I believe you exited to a deco. Is that right? A deco, yes. They're, uh, they're a pretty large uh, staffing conglomerate. And uh, you know, we're really interested in what General Assembly was doing from a digital standpoint. So they um, acquired General Assembly for a bit north of 400 million in uh, 2018. Well, first of all, huge congratulations, because that's one hell of an achievement and story in itself. But it's not what we're going to talk about today, sadly. What I'd rather focus on is what you managed to take from your experience at General Assembly and that industry, which is what? University, academic, ed tech? I mean, what's the right bucket? Tech ed. Yeah. I mean, it, people always struggled to bucket uh, bucket General Assembly because it was sort of an ed tech startup. But what it really was, was a, a branded trade school with online and offline components that served a very specific and highly in demand niche. And so it, it, it sort of did defy categorization in that way. People didn't know whether it was a tech company, an education company. And you could say the same thing about Common in some ways. They are nevertheless fundamentally different industries. So even though you validated your concept through your first-hand experience at GA, what really interests me is how you summon the confidence to leap into the unknown world of multifamily, co-living and micro-living. Well, you know, I think on the surface, they're, they're quite different and they are quite different in a lot of ways. But when you really think about it at a high level, you know, what, do, what do young people spend their money on? You know, people 18 to 40 they spend their money on education, at least in the States where uh, education costs a pretty penny and rent. Those are the, the two biggest areas of spend. And both of those areas are highly fragmented, highly regulated. You don't really have robust consumer brands, either on the housing side or on the education side. The operators in those sectors tend to be I would say less sophisticated than you see in other industries. I mean, you look at another segment of the market like insurance or e-commerce and, you know, the thoughtfulness around, you know, product design around consumer sales would run circles around people in housing and education. Uh, so it's, a, it's hard to compare industry to industry like that. But, you know, they are two areas that have outsized uh, investment in consumer spend, and I believe undersized investment in good technology and design. So Brad, you've got two great startups under your belt. There may even be others in the past we don't know about, and there will undoubtedly be more in the future. What motivates you as a founder? What's your kind of driving force? Well, I love businesses that have a really material impact on the lives of the people who use those businesses. So, and I mean, really transformational impact. 
So general assembly, obviously, that that's very straightforward. You know, you have people who've gone through our courses and they've changed careers. They're making twenty thousand dollars a year more. You know, and we 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 cared about that. One of the metrics we always watched and watched so closely was you know, how many of our graduates would get a job in their chosen field within 90 days of graduation. You know, we we kept that number, you know, north of 90%, you know, while we were running GA. You know, that was something that was very, very important to us. Similar with common, it's, it's how can you have uh, a material impact on someone's life by giving them a quality place to live in a neighborhood they want to be in at a price point that they can afford so they're not commuting 45 minutes each day. They're not on the fifth floor of a walk up and kind of a rundown building. So having that uh, material impact on the customer's life is something that's very motivating to me. Of course, it does put a lot of pressure there, put a big burden to do things well, because when they don't go well, they really don't go well. It's not like you know I'm using a $8 a month app and uh, I don't like it, so I just cancel. This is this is hard stuff. So it's uh you know neither of those businesses are are I would say for the for the faint of heart that level of involvement in your customers' lives. So how do you manage the burden of that accountability? Because I can only assume running a business like that at any kind of scale comes with a whole load of stress. So how do you manage your own personal stress levels? Well, you know, there's a few ways. I mean, first you have to look organizationally and how do you structure an organization from a people, process, and system standpoint to manage a business such as that? How do you have failovers? You know, you know, processes are going to fail. You know, people are going to slip up. How does that not jeopardize the quality of the product? You know, building in a culture of escalation. So uh, when things are going awry, when things aren't going as well as they could, people internally escalating, uh, getting it in front of the right person. I mean, General Assembly was around 500, 600 employees when I left. You know, Common is 350 employees today. So at that scale, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. And then you have to be really values driven as an organization and you just have to repeat those over and over and over again and really ensure that people understand that we have their back, we're on their side. And I mean, our employees. You know, particularly people coming out of other industries or more traditional operators where perhaps, you know, you don't have a culture of, hey, raise your hand if something's going wrong and, you know, we're really going to dive in and fix it. So retraining a lot of those things is, is critical and tricky. Right. Let's turn our attention now to Common and talk about that business in a bit more detail. Ultimately, what's your vision for Common? What do you believe it can become? And I guess the second part of my question is, how do you intend to take it there and realize that vision? I mean, it sounds like it's growing super fast, right? <laughs> yeah, we, we, we just about doubled our units under management over the past year. We're just shy of 8,000 now as of beginning of February, 2022. So, you know, we're, we're going to really continue that arc of growth. And, you know, we want to be in the next, you know, five years in the, in the hundreds of thousands of units under management. And there's, there's certainly precedent for that. I mean, there's 40 million rental apartment units in the U.S. alone. The rental apartment market is growing very quickly in places like Canada, the U.K., Australia, Spain. So we believe there are a lot of opportunities outside the United States as well. And there's a real need. I mean, people need somewhere to live. They want a high quality place to live. We found that active management is a good thing that someone a lot of something a lot of urban dwellers in particular are are looking for. So, 
you know, we believe there's room to grow this well into the hundreds of thousands of, uh, of units under management in the next five years. So I imagine that building a business of that kind of scale requires significant investment. So I guess, how are you thinking about that? And, and you know, as you, as you go on your journey of, of building Common, are you raising institutional capital to do that? If so, what are the types of investors that you're looking to engage with? I mean, putting yourself in the, in the shoes of our listeners, many might be, you know, building their own prop tech businesses or, or thinking about building their own prop tech businesses. And the kind of questions they might have is, who are the investors that I should be targeting to, you know, to, to invest in my venture? Yeah. So um, we, are, we are institutionally backed. We're backed by a handful of venture firms, you know, most notably Shinovic, uh, which is a Stockholm-based growth equity firm with about $18 billion in AUM, and Norwest, which is a Silicon Valley-based firm. So those are two of, our, two of our larger backers. You know, that being said, I'm also a unit economic fundamentalist. So every unit we, we manage has to, be, has to be profitable from a four walls basis. And that's been something that we've been very, very strict on. Um, and has, has served us well. And, you know, one reason we're, uh, you know, we're still around despite some of the challenges of the past two years. So, you know, we, we look at that, you know, venture backing as kind of an accelerant, you know, a, a property management firm is a very tough thing to bootstrap. And the reason is that if you don't have a track record, who is going to give you a building to manage? Um, so most property managers that exist were created as, as spin outs of development firms. So, you know, a firm built their own, built and managed their own properties. They decided to focus more on the building and less on the management. They spun out the management company. They took on third-party contracts. Suddenly you have, you know, a gray star, for instance. So there are, it's very, very tough to, to bootstrap a management company, which is one of the reasons we've, we've raised outside capital to invest in technology, invest in differentiation, you know, co-living was a big accelerant for us because there was no one else who could do that well when we started. And, uh, you know, that really got us into the management market. And from that, we're able to expand into a, a wider variety of, uh, of, of, of building types. So I, I would say there are a lot of financing options available for companies that have good unit economics. If you can show that you can put a dollar in and turn it into a dollar fifty, there are going to be people who want to back that business. But the trick is really getting the unit economics right, even at subscale. So I totally agree with you. Over the last few years, but actually arguably over the last 10 years, many have tried to build significant businesses of scale in this area, and many have failed. And those that have failed have done so as a result of flawed unit economics. Just to pick on some of the brands that people might have heard of in the service department space, but Sonder is obviously one that has uh, been a success story, it has survived the pandemic, it has recently spacked, and it is going on to do great things. Equally, at the other end of the spectrum, you have the lyrics of this world, which fell by the wayside, and many others, I might add, who invested too heavily in the brand around their operation and not into the core of their business. How do you now go about positioning common within that increasingly busy and you know established market? Yeah, absolutely. So, so Sonder has has executed tremendously well in the short term rental space. So, you know, at for stays as short as a night, um, but more often a few weeks, maybe a month, as really where they've built their business. For us, we're focused much more on longer term rentals. So, we actually work with some short term rental operators who might take a chunk of units in one of our buildings. So, I believe. Um, you know, we have some some deals with with Blue Ground, with Casa, with with companies like that, as we are not ourselves set up to manage short term rental units. Uh, we don't rent our own units by the night. 
um, but we do work with some some other firms um, who do. And so for us, we've been very focused on you know really building a management business that is serving a wide range of owners from institutional to large regional developers and owners down to some local players as well, you know, versus a Sonder that, you know, built their business on top of master leases, you know, really seeing the owner as effectively a supplier and they've executed, you know, really well on building that short-term rental, building that brand, cultivating an audience and now, now, now being a public company. You know, we're, we're targeting somewhat of a different audience, a different market, you know, on the consumer side, longer term stays, and then, you know, larger assets from a management standpoint. So when we go into a building, we're usually managing the entire building, doing everything soup to nuts from the on the ground property management to the leasing and marketing to the reporting data and analytics from the building. And in some cases, when we have ground up, we're also doing the layouts, floor plans, interior architecture. As an operational property manager, do you ever get involved in any kind of rent guarantee at all? For example, if we look at the Sonder model where they essentially operate master leases, so they have a very high capital exposure and therefore risk attached to their business, is that something that you get involved with at all or do you shy away from that? No, we do not. We are strictly a management firm, um, you know, and we, we have some agreements that have incentive components where, you know, we hit our budget, we get some kind of bonus, but by and large, our model is you know, flat fees or fees as a percentage of, of gross of gross rents, which given the scale we're operating at is just necessary for us to do what we do. Let's talk about COVID for a minute. I mean, obviously the short-term rental industry was completely decimated by the pandemic. And as a result, many of the players fell by the wayside. However, the impact upon the long-term rented sector was very different. What was it like running common during this period? And how did you have to adapt your model to survive within the context of the multifamily and co-living sectors where you operate? <laughs> well, there have been so many different phases of the past two years. It feels like the reality on the ground has fundamentally changed about every four months. And so I feel like anyone who at any point said, hey, we are making fundamental change, long-term changes to what we were doing, was kidding themselves and probably ended up in a bad spot. So it's always, it's really been about how do you react in the moment to what's going on on the ground today? So you look back to March, April, 2020, it was how do we keep our tenants in place, comfortable, calm, healthy? How do we keep our team healthy? You know, at one point, shortage of, you know, masks and everyone was wearing, remember when everyone wore gloves all the time and face shields, we had a shipment brought in from Australia because somebody had a friend with a contact who had a bunch of PPE in Australia. So, I mean, it was just about executing, reacting in the moment. And then starting, I would say in winter, spring, 2021, rent started coming back in a very big way. And now it's more how do you navigate a world of hyper rent growth, which we're particularly seeing in a lot of Sunbelt markets? I mean, we have a couple of assets we manage in the Sunbelt where market rents are going up more than 30% year over year. And, you know, that breaks a lot of things. Suddenly, we're left with a choice of either we are raising rents 35, 40% on in-place tenants, or 
we are offering below market rents. And neither of those are fun options as a property manager. So keeping pace with the market has just been a huge challenge in itself. Right. Right. So uh, there have been so many phases to this that it's very hard at this point to describe like, oh, how did things do through COVID? I would say, you know, there was always demand for for co-living for what we're doing. We view co-living as fundamentally a form of, you know, attainable housing, of workforce housing. And there's always demand for a unit that's 20% cheaper than a studio apartment in a great building, in a great location. You know, I think one of the hardest things has been not being physically co-located with a lot of the team. You know, we are mostly back in the office now, but that's been very fits and starts. And that's been one of, I think, the hardest things. Not meeting with as many clients in person, not doing board meetings in person, not doing executive team meetings in person consistently has in some ways been as hard as uh, the market changes and ups and downs. Common is poised to launch in the UK, so it'd be really great to hear your thoughts on the UK co-living market. It's certainly safe to say there's an awful lot of buzz and excitement at an industry level about co-living. However, that's also offset to a degree by the fact that you know, the collective, one of the leading lights of the sector, went into administration during COVID. Given your love of unit economics and also your experience of the co-living and micro-living sectors in the US, it would be super interesting for us to hear how you view the UK opportunity and how the model should work in your eyes to unlock the potential in that asset class. Parse a couple of things apart. First of all, when I use the term co-living, it has different meanings in the US than in the UK. So the layouts at the collective, we in the US would not call those co-living. We would call those micros. So when I say co-living and I'm referring to you at the US typology, I mean apartments designed for sharing. Big living rooms, private bedrooms, private bathrooms. So they are different concepts. And when we are opening in the UK, we are opening what we would call micros, smaller apartments, lots of amenity space. The shared apartment concept doesn't really exist in the UK. No one really builds it, at least not on the, on the higher end of the market, which is, is, is where we play. So to be clear, for the avoidance of any doubts, the collective, which was a lighthouse company in the UK co-living space, to use your terminology, was in fact building communities of micro apartments. Right. And there are a lot of developers in the, in, the, in, the, in the states who do that, where it's allowed, developing kind of small apartments that have shared amenity space, etc. One thing that I would separate is changes in consumer demand for that kind of typology, whether it's a co-living layout or a micro-apartment layout, whatever you want to call it, versus changes in capital markets. What sunk the collective was not a change in consumer demand, but a change on the capital market side, which is they had a lot of sites that they had put a lot of debt on, expecting that the development market, the construction lending market would return or would, would continue. And starting March of 2020, Nobody was lending against a co-living development on the construction lending side. And, you know, some of that was construction lenders tend to be very conservative. They, you know, they tend to be the, you know, I'd say the limiting factor for a lot of residential development, particularly innovation and development. And so nobody was lending until about July, August, 2021, six months ago, you started seeing some lending come back in a very limited way with top quality sponsors. But 
the collective had all this debt on these sites. And ultimately, it was the leverage that sunk them. They also rented a number of units, my understanding is, rented them more short-term. And short-term stays, particularly in urban centers, just got tanked. So I want to make sure when we look at you know, a story like The Collective or Star City, which was a very similar narrative, that you separate the consumer problem, which was pretty much, in our view, March to June of 2020, and then it came back, from the financial problem, which lasted 15 to 18 months and was much, much more harmful to highly levered companies that owned land, had construction debt, such as the collective and Star City. So it sounds, Brad, like your approach to growing your micro business is really all about focusing on long-term leases versus short-term leases and higher-touch hospitality, which in turn comes with greater operating costs, focusing on unit economics, tapping into pools of proven demand, and really making sure you're not exposed to fluctuations in the capital markets. Would that be right? Correct. And we really do that by simplifying the business model. You know, we don't get involved in development. We don't master lease. We are in management firm. So we are hired by developers, by owners to run their buildings, whether they be co-living, conventional multifamily or micros. And so that does limit our exposure to the ups and downs of the market. And in fact, you know, when people are desperate to lease, when consumer demand is slow, you know, obviously that we have to be vigilant in how we operate our buildings. But from a business development standpoint, that's kind of a good thing for us because we are known as being one of the better groups on the leasing and marketing side. So over the past year, we've taken over a lot of distressed assets, a lot of buildings at sub 80% occupancy that we were able to get back to 97%. And so we do see uh, in some ways it's easier to operate this business uh, in times of demand crises than in times of over-exuberance uh, when we're having to hand you know 40% rent increases to tenants. Let's turn our attention now to tech. And when I say tech, I mean property technology in the broadest sense. How is Common approaching developing its own tech stack? And what areas do you invest in internally versus outsource to third parties? And really, what's your strategy as a fast-growing business with big ambitions? Yes. Uh, two rules. Software over hardware and back of office over front of office. And here's what we mean by each of those. 98% of our thinking, of our dollars, of our brain power goes into the software side, not into the hardware side. I do believe there are very specific and very critical use cases for hardware. For instance, we use latch locks. We use uh, Ubiquiti Unify Wi-Fi routers. We are really interested in some of the sensors, some of the of environmental solutions, air quality, things like that. So, so we are looking at that and making some uh, implementations there. What we try to avoid is, is the quintessential example of, uh, you know, iPads on the wall. You know, you tour a five-year-old building and a five-year-old residential building is still new and beautiful and, you know, looks like a new building. But five-year-old iPads, you know, belong in museums. And so there's just a very fundamental disconnect between the depreciation window of consumer hardware, talking about consumer hardware, not Wi-Fi routers, consumer hardware versus a physical building. And, and if you're putting a lot of consumer hardware into a building, you have to really rethink your CapEx reserves. Also, many on-site building staff, 
they don't have that capability of maintaining IT equipment in-house. So you're going to a third-party vendor. Those vendors are really expensive. And so it blows your budget very easily on the OPEX side if you're putting a lot of hardware on the walls. So we tend to favor software over hardware. So within software, there's a lot of buzz, a lot of attention paid to apps in the hands of tenants. We have an app. It's great. But I think once you get past about six features... Is that an app you've built yourselves in-house? It is. It is an app we built ourselves in-house. But, you know, you can create events, you can join events, you can add interests, meet others in the building, chat with others in the building, pay your rent, submit a ticket. Once you get past kind of that list of features, you hit diminishing marginal returns pretty fast. And you don't want to overcomplicate something and, and overwhelm a tenant, many of whom are not technology power users. You don't want to overwhelm them with features and functionality. So 98% of our investment within software is actually in back of house things, things that make our team more efficient, things that make the leasing process better, things that make the tenant experience seamless, where the tenant doesn't have to do anything. So we're monitoring work orders better. We are doing a better job routing tickets that come in. We can handle leases seamlessly, easily. You know, 48% of all of our leases signed last quarter, the tenant never stepped foot in the building. Virtual tour only. So that's where we're making real investments and frankly, seeing the returns. So it's tenant acquisition and back office management with a real focus on productivity and experience. Is that about right? Exactly. Makes total sense. And I guess, how do you see that evolving? Because most of these resident apps, once the tenant is in situ, They focus on features like allowing the tenant to renew their lease, right? To extend their lease, to move within the building. The more advanced ones are looking to enable their tenants to move within their global portfolio. As a growing global portfolio, I'd be really interested to hear if Common sees demand for those types of features and whether you're looking to enable them within your app. Yes, absolutely. So um, it is something we see. I would say it is still a pretty small number of people. So there is still kind of a human role in moving between buildings right now, but it's certainly on our list to automate that, but probably not the, not the highest priority given the relative, relatively small number of people who do it today. I would say there is a segment of people, digital nomads, people who like the idea of going between buildings. Um, but if you look at the bulk of people that we're serving across our 10,000 or so residents, they're not digital nomads. They're key workers. They are you know, junior white collar professionals. They are a handful of students. So it's, it's generally, it's a, it's a sub 10% of the, of the total audience. And I think that will go down over time just as we continue to grow and expand what we're doing into a wider number of cities. So for us, like we're not trying to eliminate the human entirely out of the process because this is high touch. Like, let's go back to what I said earlier. You know, we are usually our tenants' single biggest expense. And I don't think it should be a goal of ours to completely remove the human from that interaction. What I want to do is make sure that the humans that are interacting with the tenants are knowledgeable and they have the tools they need to actually help the tenant. And they're accessible. 
So we've been moving a lot more things into central back offices out of buildings because I really care about accessibility. And when a tenant calls our support line, I want them to get a human on the phone, even if that human is not in their building. And that human can walk them through a renewal. It can schedule them for a tour of another building. It can help them with a support ticket. So for me, I really care uh, that there is that layer of access and that that access is quality as opposed to everything happens through an app. Obviously, within the multifamily sector, hospitality is a major thematic and nearly all of the operators that we work with have some plan to kind of become more hospitality oriented over time. Do you see Common evolving to become more of a hospitality business? We are in some ways. I mean, our our, our EVP of property management is, uh, has a hotel background. I mean, she was COO of Joie de Vivre for a number of years. I mean, one of the top high-end hospitality boutiques in the US. So we do have that in our DNA. And, you know, that is uh, an important part of uh, who we are and what we do. Just reflecting on what you were saying, but, you know, everyone assumes that hospitality means high-touch, high-cost, in-person interactions. But that's, of course, not the case because what hospitality is all about is just great customer experiences. And those great customer experiences can happen remotely. They can happen online. What defines a great hospitality experience is, of course, the satisfaction you get from that interaction rather than the nature of the interaction itself. It's the magic feeling it leaves you with. And I have to agree with you, more often than not, that comes from a human interaction. Right. And, and so, so much of, of, of where I, I believe operators today get it wrong is they jump straight from in-person interaction with a physical human at a building to AI interaction with a robot on a website. And that's a massive leap. So they're going straight from you have to physically walk into a building and talk to a leasing agent. That's one end. Or you can go to our website and interact with a robot. And there's like, there's no in between. There's no, hey, you can get on the phone with a leasing agent in five minutes who can walk you through the application process. No, no, I I totally get it. I mean, when you're talking about such a big expense, people want their spend to be managed by somebody who they have total confidence in. So it's really all about building trust and therefore building trust becomes the goal of every single interaction with that client, with that customer, which of course is a very different objective from automation or trying to reduce cost. Correct. Right, Brad, you've been super generous with your time, so we're going to wrap up with some final questions. You're a really experienced and successful entrepreneur with multiple wins under his belt. What advice can you offer aspiring tech entrepreneurs who are eyeing up opportunities within the residential space? From your vantage point, where are the opportunities? What business would you build? You know, and, and, and what are the pitfalls you'd look out for? Yeah, so I still believe there, there's a massive opportunity for tech-enabled point solutions in multifamily and commercial and a number of prop tech categories. What I would really do is look at what is happening in other industries that are a little further along in terms of customer experience, in terms of use of technology and automation, in terms of uh, use of marketing technology, adapt those solutions for residential uh, you know, build integrations with Appfolio, with Entrada, with Yardi, with all of the major ERPs and create a solution that can be easily deployed by management companies, by owner operators. I think there's a massive opportunity there and still is today. And generally what I advice I give to entrepreneurs who are just starting out, particularly first timers is, you know, define a very clear and addressable, it can be small, small is fine. Define a very clear and addressable market and problem you're solving. Solve that. 
and expand incrementally from there. There's a lot of people try to boil the ocean from the beginning, and that's, uh, that's very, very tough. So to start small, but that doesn't mean you should stop thinking big, right? Yes. Now, Brad, you've also sat on the VC side, haven't you? You've been an entrepreneur in residence and you've, uh, you've seen how things work from the investment side. So I guess the next question is, with your VC hat on, what are the areas uh, of opportunity that you see within the residential space and the specific trends that you see that are highly investable right now? I'd give a very similar answer of any kind of technology, both on residential and commercial you know, I think the puck is moving much more toward, you know, pure play of technology solutions, uh, subscription solutions. Um, I think there's a big opportunity for innovation on the brokerage side as well is an area I'm excited about. There are also a lot of mandates coming out around building energy efficiency that are going to lead to a proliferation of companies. So really excited about uh, opportunities throughout the stack in uh, PropTech. Some final curveball questions to kind of leave behind everything we've discussed about Common and unearth the human behind Brad Hargreaves. First one, Brad, is what's the best bit of professional advice you've ever been given in your career? It's never as good as it seems, nor as bad. You know, <laughs> as an entrepreneur, you tend to go through these ups and downs. Things seem great one day and then they seem terrible the next day. It's never that good and it's never that bad in reality. Very well said. I can certainly relate to that. Next question. If in another life you had an alternative career, what would you be? You know, when I was a kid, I always wanted to be a, uh, wanted to be a weatherman, wanted to tell the weather. And, uh, you know, now there are all these like people on Twitter who tell the weather in like really unique and, uh, and, and special ways. And, you know, I feel like I'd want to be one of those guys on Twitter telling the weather. That's pretty niche. So you get extra points for that. I'm also amazed to say you're the second person on this show who's also wanted to be a weatherman or weather person when they were younger. What are the chances? So the final question is, if you could invite somebody onto this show to tell their story and give you their insights, who would that person be and why? You know, there are some really brilliant people in the real estate community who are starting to share their stories and what they're doing on platforms like Twitter. It's been great to, uh, to be a part of that. So, you know, you look at someone like Bobby Fihan, who is, you know, probably the foremost floor plan expert. It's so niche, but, you know, he's really gone out and said, you know, they don't teach floor plans in architecture school. It's something that all these multifamily guys just make up as they go along, but there's a better and si more scientific way to do it. So I would, uh, frankly, pick someone with a pretty like unique niche, but compelling insight like Bobby. Well, the science of floor planning sounds interesting to me. So let's get Bobby on the show. Brad, we've come to the end of the episode and it's really clear that Common is going to be a huge success and one that I'll certainly enjoy watching from the sidelines. Thank you for being so generous with your time and for sharing with us your 2020 vision. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate you having me on today. Real Estate 2020 Vision is brought to you by Lavanda, the world's leading flexible rental software. For full information, visit www.getlavanda.com and download our iLabor. Wow, wow, wow. Wow, wow. Wow, wow.